0: Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk
1: about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around, and
0: hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. This is Race Theory with Derek and Alicia Cope. Obstacles is the way. That's what we're episode 15 is about. And it really starts off with the obstacles that we have before us. And the first was really the charter. And we had to lease a charter in 2018, which we're fortunate enough to be able to do. But the main goal had always been to own a charter, which a lot of people said we would never, ever be able to do. But we had been working with RCR to procure their. Twenty-seven charter, which is what we were releasing. and we had been working on that and trying to get them to find a way to release that and relinquish that to us. And there was a lot of negotiations back and forth all winter long. There was a lot of vacillation, one, one way and the other, thinking that we were going to be able to get it. And then you'd be you'd think you were really close to making it happen, have a time frame, and it would come and go. And they had held back.
1: Well, at one point, even the board of directors were, was completely 100% sure. Yep, it's yours. It's yours. And we're all celebrating and popping the champagne. And then, nope, I think Richard wants to keep it. <laughs> so it definitely was like high and low all through Christmas. Are we going to get this charter or are we not?
0: Well, at that period of time, there was a lot of maybe different ideas about the charters. Their worth, what they were selling for. There was a lot of disparity in that. And I think that ultimately, you know, a lot of the owners that had more than one wanted to keep them as security and in case, cause you always have, you know, drivers coming in with money late, looking to put a deal together as it was, RCR was in a bit of a dilemma because they really didn't have all the funding for the sponsorship that they, that they wanted and felt like that. And of course, their numbers are relatively high, so they're, to run it the way they wanted to run that it. That is correct. So, you know, they were they were looking for more sponsorship, and from all the feedback that we were getting and listening to, that you know they were struggling on getting some, you know, some fundings, and things weren't going as well as they had hoped they would, or some of the things that they had in the pipeline weren't really coming to fruition, and some of the drivers they thought were going to come there that had funding weren't coming. So, I think you know they were waiting. To the last minute to hope that they found a sponsorship deal that could, you know, they could use that charter for as a, you know, as a big uh, carrot that they were dangling and give them that and get a deal done. And it we were I mean, we were on the west coast, you know, for for the holidays and just waiting with bated breath trying to get, you know, an idea whether this is going to go through or not. And Matt was really Matt Kohler was right there, you know, working with Them back and forth, and just trying to get this thing done. And you know, we were fortunate enough late in January that we were able to to get the charter. They said that they would agree. I think they pretty much exhausted all the avenues, and I think they needed funding and they wanted funding, and the board wanted the funding, and so we got the charter. But it, you know, obviously coming at cost as well. So you know, Starcom Fiber had to purchased the charter, which kind of left us in a position where I had to manage uh, our spending over the winter and getting ready for Daytona, you know, which uh, off of really what money that I had actually made and I still had in the bank, you know, from 2018. So it was a difficult uh, winter for me trying to, you know, I was on a spreadsheet and my spreadsheets were, you know, Basically every item that got bought that day was off my spreadsheet. So I had a bottom line number and I knew where I was at and whether I could make it, you know, to Daytona and to our first paycheck. So basically you get your first paycheck the week after the Friday after the race. So I knew that I had to get to the second race and I would have to have, you know, enough money to get us through. And then our first check would come from Daytona, which would be substantial. And then we'd be off and running.
1: And fortunately, we did get a sponsor for Daytona, and uh, they would go on to do several more races. Kevin Cope uh, brought on Permatex, and that would become a very good relationship, great people. um, An iconic brand. And very, very definitely an iconic brand. And the car was um, very recognizable, and uh, we had a lot of fun with those folks.
0: Yeah, they were great fun. Uh, We had a great time with them at Daytona uh, the car looked really great. I mean, the car was fantastic. It had great colors. Uh, and you know, it was a, an iconic brand that had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of equity and rate in, in motorsports uh, in general. And so it was nice to have that to take us to Daytona. And, uh, we were able to, again, have the funding necessary to get there and, you know, just had to be very careful on, on what we did. And so there was no real ancillary spending and we were able to, to get to Daytona and we were on our way to having a really good run at Daytona. Everything had gone relatively well there and practice in the one fifty and in the race. We were poised to miss all of the wrecks and be there late in the race. And you know, we had um a situation that had transpired and this kind of to take a step back, I was just trying to get us to Daytona, but the reason we had some problems were you know, I had hired, I had a new crew chief and I had, I had hired a competition director. One that really, uh, had a great name in the sport. It was Todd Parrott, you know, and I had a relationship with Buddy Parrott when I won Daytona. It was his son. And Todd, you know, had a wealth of experience and Todd was, uh, basically working at, you know, our, with all his history, you know, at Robert Yates racing, when they won a lot of races, they won championships, they were And he was a very, very creditable individual. He had gone through some personal struggles and had been away from racing and out of the scene for a while, kind of like Buddy did for a while. And was not, not then he comes back. And I knew what he, I knew that he was capable of doing this job. I knew that he had a lot of experience. I thought he could bring something to the table because I had a crew chief that I felt like did a good job with the chassis but maybe not quite as good with the arrow, not quite as good with managing people. And I kept pushing over the winter and before the actual winter to get him to manage his people, you know, really to try to get more structured. And I was getting alarmed before Daytona because I just wasn't seeing him taking charge. And that's why I, I elected to bring in Todd.
1: As a competition
0: director, which we hadn't had
1: that position before.
0: All right. So I really wanted him, and the only thing I wanted him to do was just to stand back and be observant, to watch what we were doing, interject things that he thought would be helpful from an aero standpoint. You know, he had access to some other teams, you know, because he'd been doing this kind of a job with, you know, with uh, Chevrolet and doing so. He had relationships with people. I felt like that. We could probably make a step forward on a lot of fronts uh, and then him overseeing what maybe, you know, what we had as far as some issues or things that with personnel, what could we do? How could we reposition personnel? What would you do? do? We need to make some changes because he's managed a lot of great people. He's managed large you know, amounts of people and just was using that as, a, as a, uh, a sounding board more so. And I wanted him to sit on the pit box with our crew chief. And I wanted them on opposite ends of the pit box. And I wanted the crew chief to make all the decisions, but I wanted Todd to observe because he's a great strategist. And I wanted him to be able to interject something if he saw something of magnitude that we needed to make a decision on. And I was trying to leave it in their hands. And ultimately, it's not my job to call the race or or do those things and interject things. And so... That's what we got down to the end of this race, and you know, I was managing you know other things. I didn't really feel well at that race, and um I had left the pit box and I had gone you know I was actually in the restroom and then I' come <laughs> out of the restroom <laughs> and I had come back to the garage area and I was going to the to the transporter and had really hadn't felt that well, and I get back to the transporter and who's there but Todd. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And evidently he had had a disagreement or something had happened on the pit box and he was upset by it. And he'd come back to the garage area. And I said, get back to the pit box. So I, now
1: you've got the general manager, the competition director <laughs> yeah. sitting there in the transporter when you should be on pit road. And I'm
0: trying to get him to go back to pit road to to, you know, because the race is still going on. And just as I have got him standing up and walking back towards, there's a big wreck. That big wreck happens, which we miss. And we, I immediately, I realized that we are in a position now to have a solid finish. Well, to be top 10, to or, be better. Top 10 or better. And all we have to do really is lay in the weeds again, because there's, there's still enough laps that you could get wrecked again. And our deal was do not, you? Know, there'll be another wreck or another caution. So let's just lay at the back. Let's do not get caught up in that. So what do I do? I, I send, I tell Todd, let's go. Well, he doesn't go. And next thing you know, you know, we're getting ready. And I said, Todd, go back, to, go back. And I said, we're going to go back. So we all started to go back to the deal. Well, he heads back. Well, then they start the race and Landon uh, is at the back, but the, another wreck happens, and Landon speeds up and tries to, you know, make a way through the wreck and gets collected, and just thwarts the uh, the effort. And really, you know, we still had a decent finish, but not what we were capable of getting. Plus, we tore the race car up, and just another ending that was dejecting for the owners and ourselves uh, when we were in a position to really maximize laying in the weeds. And well, and
1: a as rock. a, and as a small team, I'm sure the listeners know the majority of them, but those that don't really your, your Daytonas and your Talladegas, that's the only time that you really have opportunity as a small team to win, legitimately win. And that's where you put all of your, your eggs in that basket. And you're hoping that you can leave super speedways with a lot of points mounted because you know, it's going to be famine after that. Um, all of those intermediate tracks are very difficult on small teams. We don't have, you know, the information that those big teams do. And we don't come there, you know, kind of, kind of like you, you say, bringing a, a knife to a gunfight. That's small teams versus big teams at those intermediate tracks. So the speedways, though, you pretty much got the same power. You, you both got a gun, but it's how you manage while you're in that race.
0: Well, it really, again, there's so many, it's a different type of race and the draft is a real equalizer. So you're able to utilize the draft. If you can have a driver that understands the air, understands how to draft. And then lots of times it really is about laying in the weeds and, and trying to run out towards the back, which you see a lot of big teams do as well, trying to manage risk. So you try to lay back at the back, not show your hand, just try to log laps, stay on the lead lap, stay in the draft, but towards the back, not putting yourself in a position for guys that are up there jockeying and trying to, uh, you know, to make things happen too early. And that's ultimately what our, you know, our thoughts were so we could try to have a good start to the year because getting off to the start of the year with good points, especially because now we own a charter. The one thing that we talked about before was the being in the bottom three and you have to stay out of the the bottom three of the uh, charter. So you got to be 33rd or better. And so getting off in the beginning of the year with a lot of points and having a lot of, you know, uh, good finishes where you can mount points early gives you flexibility for the what if factor. So what Which what we definitely
1: did. Yeah. What if
0: you have problems, right? And you go through a streak of bad luck or misfortune, uh, you know, and you really just need to be able to get off, get off the mark good. And it does so much for a team and, uh, come back again with, uh, that devastating crash again at Daytona, even though we did have decent amount of points, but it just could have been so much more and so much better. And so that kind of set the tone. And of course I had a clashing of individuals again so i leave Daytona with having to go home and i have uh, a disruptive thing within the organization where i have people that are not really excited about the competition director and they don't want to listen to him. They don't want to listen to what. Well, and
1: the crew chief was not helping that situation either. No. And once again, you you find your yourself. We found ourselves in this position again, where you need to make a personnel change at the top, otherwise, it's going to toxify your entire organization. But it was early. It and was not. way early.
0: And the and the situation was too at that time. You know, Todd had already, you know, broached the subject uh, with um, a higher ranking, um, crew chief at Roush racing about, you know, a crew chief or some other people there that we could, you know, possibly get, or that if, would they, did they have anybody? Was there anybody available that he thought could make the transition from maybe a car chief to a crew chief? And they had given Todd a name and we, we, you know, kind of kept that, you know, under, our, he, he told me about it before, you know, before the race and everything. So it was just something that I had in the back of my mind. And cause I could tell that what was going on prior to Daytona through the winter was not where we needed to be. And, um, I certainly had reservations about being able to make it very far before we were going to have to do something. And I was using Todd as a backup because I, I knew how much experience he had. And I felt like that I, but I started seeing signs of. Just after Daytona, go for the first part of the year, you start to get a sense of personnel issues with some of our personnel. And it's just another thing that you just don't need. You've acquired a charter, you're trying to get off to a good start, and now you have people problems. And you're only as good as the people you have working for you.
1: Well, they'll make you or break you. And they might have been okay on their own, but when you have two that are clashing like that, um, it just was not a good combo.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got, you got a guy, you know, when I listen to what he's, what he's interjecting, there is value to it and there is merit to it. Absolutely. But the rest of the group, you know, is somewhat, you know, cliquish and they've, they've kind of banded together and they don't want to listen and they want to undermine what he's saying. And then there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of talk and things under your breath and sarcasm, passive aggressiveness. All those things just start to change the culture very quickly of what you had built. And at that point, again, you have a sense that, you know, we're we, we going to have to make some changes and we're going to have to try something different. And sometimes, you know, change is, is what you have to do. And you have to do it early enough that you don't get embedded and keep going too far down the road.
1: Well, something I have learned long ago is something I learned in economics class called Sunk Cost. And you can equate that to anything in your life, a marriage, a relationship, um, a business. But you want to hold on to things because you've invested time in them or invested money in them. But when things continue to go poorly, and even though you liked these individuals, and we had relationships before and after with these individuals, but When they're not working together as a team, just to hold on to them because you can see merit in them, you can see good things in them, but holding on to it just continues to degrade your program. And so there comes a point where you're like, cut the losses. Sunk cost is always going to be sunk, and there's no resurrecting the Titanic. So we did have to make that difficult decision and move to that crew chief that was recommended. And in my opinion, it was the worst crew chief that we would ever have at Starcom. But I mean, he didn't start off that way.
0: I mean, all the, all the dialogue that we had and all the, you know, discussions about this um, man, you know, uh, from credible individuals, you know, led us to believe that this was probably somebody that had the ability from a chassis standpoint uh, to give us what we need.
1: And off the bat, he did seem to have some camaraderie with the guys. The crew respected him and it was about the same time, though, that we got the pull-down rig. And so it's hard to say what elevated our performance more, the difference in a crew chief or the addition of that pull-down, because that did make our um, rolling-off-the-truck performance much better than it had been before.
0: Well, when you, just so you understand some of the pitfalls you have when, you, when you're running the chassis the way you were in the Cup Series at this time, you're sitting on bump springs. So you're really trying to limit the car's travel because you have a front splitter. And this front this front splitter uh, is the leading edge uh, to the ground and the edge of the air for the arrow of the car, which creates downforce. So it's a pitch attitude. So you have this front thing sticking out there like a bill, like a duck bill, and it sits out there and that's what sees the air first. And that is what actually keeps air going underneath the car, which you need some uh, going underneath the car because it has to activate the front pan that's underneath there, which is like a belly pan that covers up from the suspension, but you also need it to create downforce and create and, and push the nose down where you get a lot, some vertical load on the car. So the car will plant the rear tire and get grip. So it's a compromise. So when you have a bump spring and what you do is you, you have a bump spring on there, and then you're almost like simulating the aero load of what you know, there are actual loads that these cars see as they go in the corner. So the right front and all the left front and the rears, you know, they all get loads put on them as they enter the banking in the corners. So when it does that, of course, that creates travel. And the attitude and how low the splitter is creates downforce. uh, And or if it's not enough, air goes too much, goes underneath, then you got lift. So basically, we were in a position where we were doing that Just by pushing down on the cars before and using my my past information and the things that I had done as a shock specialist, and trying to come up with basically, depending on the spring rates we were running and the bump springs, trying to find something that'll keep the splitter off the ground, but keep it lower the ground till we got to the racetrack where we could see how much the car traveled. So we got the pull down rig. It was a major investment. The owners stepped up and uh, we bought this. And it instantly paid dividends for us because they're with a team you're doing a lot of guesswork, you're racing its teams that have everything. They have pull down rigs, they got simulation, they got CFD modeling, they got the wind tunnel. They have all these things at their disposal, which we did not. So, this was giving us a fixture to be able to go and quantify and give us a good starting point that when we showed up at the racetrack, when we would go out for our first laps on practice with new sticker tires. We could really push the envelope and get and utilize those stickers, give the driver a sense of what he would have at least one time before qualifying with stickers, before you would do a mock qualifying run. And then you would see, did you have decent speed? Or and then you would see what your travels were at, and you could really start to get a feel or a picture of the pitch attitude of the car, which creates the, you know, the key amount of downforce and balance in the race car. So you always listen to racing. You hear balance, balance, balance. That's pitch attitude. That's balanced front to rear downforce. Can we keep the pitch, the the pitch attitude the same and keep downforce front and rear at a maximum? So that's what the pull down rig did for us. And I think with the influx of this new crew chief, he had worked on those before because of the big organization he was at. he'd been utilizing those. So it was kind of like an instant match made in heaven. We have a pull down rig. Um, which I can utilize and he's there and he has experience on that. And we're able to start to maybe go to the racetrack more proficiently, get off the mark quicker and start to, you know, feel like that we're making inroads because now we're not taking two or three runs in practice to just make sure that we get the car off the ground or or down lower to the ground. Now we hit it right off the mark and now we're just trying to find speed, making other changes to try to get the speed up in the car. So you just expedite the learning process.
1: Right. Well, it showed um, with the, uh, in my opinion, the pull-down rig um, added a lot to that. And um, when we first um, started the year, it was evident that we needed you know, someone else in authority. But of course, this person hadn't come from that position of crew chief. They had come from a-, a Car chief. A car chief position. So another example of You know, there, there is reasons why certain people are leaders, but, um, but that being said, we were running well regardless, but then we started having the, the lift pump issues.
0: Yeah. You, you, you just start to make inroads and we're, we're, we're on a good path. I think the confidence grew in this man and the owner's confidence grew, the driver's confidence grew. We were starting to really see, you know, a progression. And then we have, of course what we call lift pumps, which are the fuel pumps in the uh, fuel cell. And this is a, a EFI. So this is electronic ignition, and we've got electric fuel pumps. And we started having an issue where they would not pick up fuel. And so um, it
1: just sounded like we were out of gas there yeah. towards the end of a run and couldn't figure out why.
0: So we ended up having these issues, and we had we had replaced lift pumps. We had replaced the main pumps. And we had taken the fuel cells apart. We had gone back. We changed fuel cells, bought a new fuel cell, changed wiring harnesses. We were going through everything that we could do uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. And the crew chief was saying, well, this is what it was. He talked to somebody, this is what it was. Well, we started changing one thing at a time that was instead of just going in and wholesale change, change everything right off the bat. We were making one uh, adjustment because he thought this is what it was. Then we'd have the same problem. Then we'd do the next. And he said, well, this is, this is the other guys. who say this is the problem. And then we do that. And then we'd have another problem. I think we went six weeks in a row.
1: Six races where we had DNFs and it was just demoralizing because we'd be having a good run. And you're sitting there on eggshells in the pit box thinking, oh, I think this was it. I think we fixed it. I think we fixed it. And then landed to be like, you got to be kidding me it's of, I'm running out and of we, gas. We we
0: had guys from RCR, uh helping us. Yes. We had guys from the Geico team helping us. We were working on many things and uh JTG I went and we got lift pump from JTG. We we're just trying different things. And finally I had had enough. And I think we were at Charlotte and we were going to do some other thing and I said no, we're not. I said that's enough. I want everything changed. I want everything we got we got all this new stuff here, everything brand new. Change everything. And we, we did, we changed everything at one time again, but we'd gone through multiple things. Right. But I changed everything, put all brand new parts in and we, we, I mean, everything and it worked and we had, we had no problem. But
1: still no clear culprit.
0: Yeah. No reasoning. We don't know why. All we know is we have all this stuff that we took off and put all brand new pieces on everything. I mean, complete everywhere. And we solve the issue. So, what do you do? You take all that stuff and you just set it aside. But because you don't know, because you don't know <laughs> where it. the rotten apple is. But we we had gone through six times of trying all these different variables, right? And we couldn't do it. But at that point, you've lost so many points. You've been mired towards the back now in points because you couldn't finish a race, and you spent all this money. But at least we were, you know, over the mountain. We saw we we, we overcame the obstacle again. But it doesn't take, you know, and you got a lot of smart people and you cannot figure this thing out. When you have an electric gremlin or, you know, you've got an air pinhole in a line or you just don't know what it is and you have to just go through everything and you completely, completely go through the car and just was nightmarish. I mean, for those six weeks to go through that. I mean the owners are up your ass. I mean, you know, the driver's <laughs> up your ass. I mean everybody. And everybody's just ill as a hornet. And so you just the temperament in the whole shop has has been demoralized. Right. And so you kind of overcome that and you kind of try to get back on track. But as we're doing this, you know, since all of this has happened, then you start to see where this crew chief's attitude is starting to change. And he is. Arrogant. Very, very arrogant. And he starts to make a lot of changes. He starts. what happens now is we get to the racetrack and maybe we know we're decent in practice, but all of a sudden it's like when Babe Ruth points and calls the shot. (laughs) Right. Well, he all of a sudden comes in and he's going to change, you know, all the bump spring, you know, again all the bump springs and all the packers and make a complete, I mean, complete change in like another direction, which is hard to do and to hit it on the head of a nail without going back on the pull down rig and knowing for sure where the load's going and then what you know what's going to what's going to be you know the the change by, by doing that and ultimately we would start the race and we would be on the splitter and we're hitting the racetrack. So right away, again, you're dropping towards the rear, you're dropping like a rock and you're coming in. You're having to come in and make changes, put Packers in, make changes on pit stop, which you lose positions. Anytime you got to do anything like that, you lose positions and you just keep being mired in the back, which puts you in dirty air and you're not going to be able to make any gains and you're going to get lapped. And once you get lapped, You're not, you know, you got to be fast enough to be able to get the lucky dog and get back on the lead lab. And if you're not, you continually just keep going backwards and you're in dirty air the whole time. And that's really was the MO of what started transpiring week in and week out. We were throwing the kitchen sink at this thing before the races. And I'm thinking, why can we not just leave things alone? Make your, make your bed, and then we'll just lie in it and see what we can do in the race and just work on the other things. But we just, we started doing all these things. And when you start getting to a place, like when you go to a place like Michigan or some of these places and you start changing all these bump stops and you start taking, you know, you start changing the wedge. Well, then all of a sudden it changes the back of the car, right? And the spoilers going a different way. And next thing you know, you're so far out of the realm. Now you've lost a lot of wedge in the car. It's just for every action, there's a reaction. And sometimes you can't keep doing all the things just because you have a problem up there. It's going to just, it diminishes the, the, the effectiveness of the car in the bag. And then the driver just can't physically find a way to uh, Well, and to you get don't have enough
1: time either. There's only very limited practice time. and. Most often, you know, we would be at the end of the line in inspection. So sometimes we'd get very little practice. By the time you get out there and you're taking huge swings in the opposite direction, you really haven't tried the setup out. So we were starting races with things that we didn't know anything about. So we we kind of went um, down that path. And in spite of that, we still weren't doing
0: too Terrible. horrible. No, exactly. It so, was still not bad, but it was still that it was like, demoralizing from the standpoint that if we would just pull our horns in a little bit and just be more methodical and not try to, you know, swing for the fences, just go for base hits. And then let's just slowly find our way and build some tendencies off of that and get better. And so I was stressing, let's just, let's just take a step back, you know, let's just try to hit singles or doubles. And then you know what? We'll find with a tendency that the car likes or, you know, that the driver likes and at certain racetracks. And so, but then we started going down a path where all of a sudden now we're starting to build, now we're working on arrow things. We're making all these changes to arrow things and we're, so we're stack, trying to stack pennies and we're saying, well, this is, he's been getting all this information. This is what, if we do this and we do that, we change this to have the fab shop come in and change all of this. We're going to gain, you know, six counts of, uh, of you know, of downforce or so we're going to do, well, next thing you know, I said, well. If you by all the things we just did, and you start adding up that—that's 100 counts or 600 or you know 30, 40 counts—I said there's no way that it really works that way. You're not going to get that, and of course you wouldn't. But you know, you get into a mode where you you know you you tell the fab shop that you do all this work, all these extra hours, come up with all these things, right? Now the fab shop's disenchanted. Now they're mad because they're staying late, they're doing all these things, right? And there's no results, right? So. Now you have now you have the fab shop pitted against the chassis shop and the crew chief going back there and telling them that he didn't care what they want to do. Stay here and get it done. That's what you guys are here for. And I want it done. Mm-hmm. Now he gets obstinate. Yes. And now he's going and he's pitting people against people and he's making the fab shop stay and do all this stuff that's unnecessary because he thinks it's going to be better. We're not going to win until to quantify it. We're not going to actually have no way to really know for sure if it does what it is or not. You're guessing. Mm-hmm. That's pissing the guys in the fab shop off because they've been at big teams. They've been in the wind tunnels. They've been through all this. And it's like, if you don't go to the wind tunnel or you don't have simulation, you don't have all those things, you're just pissing in the wind. And so now they're mad. And they've been, they've been crew chiefs before. And they've been at high level jobs. So
1: well, now, I think it, I'm,
0: it, now I got people coming to me and bitching. Yes. I'm, you know, I, I'm sitting in my office and it's like a revolving door one after another.
1: Yes. And, and I was taking those as well. You know, HR became a nightmare, definitely had, you know, the, the groups of people that he brought on, you know, he, he brought on, you know, brought in people himself, interior specialists and, and, and whatnot, you know, he got along with them. But as far as our tried and true people, the ones that were really loyal to Starcom, um, you know, they were quiet to a point, but I would, you know, I'd start to do a little investigative reporting and I'd, Call a couple of them into my office and, and come to find out they're just, they're weary and they're tired of this, you know, his philosophy that, you know, he's, uh, he's going to be the, uh, the almighty in, in every decision and, and it's just going to turn the tide and uh, we're going to go from last to first. You know, it's just very unrealistic. And so the crew was very disenchanted, as you say. And so by the end of the year, you and I knew we were making a change again, we hated to do that, you know, to a young team and have so many different crew chiefs, but it was, it was super important to me that we made a change. But, um, the owners didn't really agree with me because, you know, they're not in the trenches. They don't see what goes on. They just think that the performance improved once he came on board there in the That's spring. That's he
0: was going behind our backs though. And he was going to the owners and he was talking to the owners and he was, I think, trying to stress on the facts that if he had more reins of this thing that he could make the ch- the necessary changes of course he would be spending a lot more money because i mean he was wanting to buy he was buying, he was buying way stuff too way too much stuff and i was trying to accommodate as best as best i could but at some point i, w- I got to the point where it's like look the answer is no we're not doing that these race cars uh, these are good race cars they were solid race cars last year that were running in the top 10 and top 12. And we're making changes and doing all this stuff to them, right? And keep taking away the downforce that they have. So all we're doing is going backwards. And you want to buy all this other stuff. And I'm like, we're not doing that no more. I'm not spending no more money doing that. Fix what you got. Show me what you have right now is, is, is capable of going out and running proficiently. And we were at odds. He did not like me. And I didn't like him. And I think at that point, um, it was like, it was. Well, he, wanted, be, he, he wanted, wanted my job. job. He, he wanted, wanted my job. job. Yes. And at that point, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was just trying to figure out, you know, what, how could I keep the peace? How could I get us to the end of the year? And how could I position us for next year? Because the biggest problem I had facing me was next gen. Yes. We had this, the, the deal was the next gen car was supposed to be going from next year. So. Here I am. I have to keep money in the till. I have to keep in I have to be profitable. I mean, which is hard to do in the Cup series. I have to be profitable to try to be able to get to where I can have money to get through the winter and start getting ready for next
1: year. It's almost impossible to be profitable and especially when you're buying parts. You had tablets and tablets just full of numbers. You were constantly crunching numbers trying to figure out how we were going to make sure that we were ahead um of the ball game and to your credit we definitely were we were on schedule or ahead of schedule on a lot of teams on getting those next gen parts but NASCAR was behind at that yes. point
0: in time there was they were way behind we we're going to all the owners meetings and all the competition meetings about where they were at and they were falling way behind they were not being able to get close and everybody was concerned that we weren't going to be able to that they were going to be able to do that. And so
1: rolled it out too quickly. Yeah.
0: And so it was just a lot of things going on. And, you know, it's just, it was one of those things where I had so many things being, you know, I guess on the horizon and on the forefront that I knew were looming and coming and where I was at financially. And because of buying the charter, we weren't really able to tap into any more resources really to, to try to, you know, cover our bases so i was really you know just trying to manage the financials to where we could you know we could make ends meet right and so it was it was starting to get difficult you know trying to to all the wants and the, you know i mean everybody had a case of the I wants, you know, everybody wants something and they want this to make their job easier or make their job better. Or they want, you know, the reels for the hoses to come down. So they don't have to walk very far to get to a air hose or they want this, they want that. So you're constantly trying to appease, make it easier on your personnel, make it more efficient, you know, and we had just gone through and, you know, worked on this shop and put a nice quality place to work out of. I mean, we yes, we didn't even talk
1: about that. Yeah, we were we were in the new shop. We had we started in this tiny little place on Main Street, and then um, we bought this big, beautiful shop. And uh, it well, was it wasn't beautiful to start. It with. It wasn't beautiful to start with, but we definitely made it that way. But and oh, yeah, we it were, was a nice place to work.
0: It was an upfit. We had to do the upfit to the to the place, and so we had to go in and take the walls out. We had to meet fire, you know, codes as far as walls, uh, you know, thicknesses. Grind the floors. Uh, you know, put you know epoxy the floors. So uh, the fab shop was first and foremost, so I could make a transition from the old shop to this new shop. So I did the fab shop first uh, because of what I thought we were going to be doing, and that was taking care of our own chassis and being able to do all this in house. I was positioned for all of this to be self-reliant, and then obviously next gen is coming, so that changes the pers- you know perspective. And well, but we, you don't
1: need a fab shop when yeah, the next you, gen car comes. Yeah. Yes,
0: so you know things just change, right? You're just you're going down paths, The next thing you know, somebody throws you a curveball, and you know you're you know <laughs> you're trying to knock the thing you know out of the park, and so it was just a lot going on, and you know I was just disenchanted from the standpoint that I'm I know I got this guy who's undermining me. He's you know you got you know people that don't like you. They don't really want to talk to you. They're upset. And then you have your competition meetings and he is complete, I mean, a complete ass and very obstinate and very passive aggressive in the competition meetings. And you just want to reach over there and backhand him, (laughs) right? And I mean, you're just, I'm to the point of now, now I'm getting, now I'm getting irritable. And so- You know, it's not a good environment when you have to, you know, be in a position to look at this and listen to this every day. Well,
1: we had such a good core group of people and we all got along and it really was apparent he was the one that was making this unbearable. And so by the end of the year, long story longer, um, he's actually sitting down in the conference room with us and we're talking about um, salary raises and
0: but we've been the meeting owners, with everybody. Right. We've been meeting Absolutely with all, everyone. We've right. been meeting with everybody about yeah. pay increases.
1: Yeah. The owners know. are so generous and um, came down personally. And they're sitting there in the conference room. And uh, he showed his true colors. He just nodded and said thank you. And, um, you know, pretty much was offered the job again for next year against my uh, better judgment. But um, that's, you know, who they thought they uh, they wanted to keep. And as he walks away, He literally cussed them out as he walked away under his breath and crew members heard it. The owners did not, but came back and, uh, and, and told Mike, uh, yeah. Did you hear what he said as he was walking back into the shop about the offer that you gave him? I mean, just really did himself in on, I mean, it was, to me, it was almost, you know, people do think sometimes you're just like, did he really just say that? Did this really just happen? You couldn't even have scripted how disrespectful it was, and I'm not even going to say it. Uh, And uh, so after that, it was like, well, thanks, buddy. You just did my job for me, made made it a lot easier.
0: Well, I think at that point he felt like that, you know, we needed him, and that you know, we didn't have the ability to go find somebody else that was, you know, as good as him or better. Uh, and you know, I, I just think he he thought that he had done such a great job and then he thought that he was going to get my job. And I think he'd been, you know, he got, he kind of had land in his hip pocket too at the end. I think they started to kind of, they had started to kind of, uh, band together. And they had, been, they had been against each other. They'd been butting heads all year. I was going to say
1: he was very disrespectful to Landon as well.
0: They were butting heads all year long and being disrespectful about the driver. And then, all of a sudden, they started banding together. And I was trying to ascertain, why is this happening? Because, you know, you've got them complaining about each other. And then, all of a sudden, now, collectively, they are, you know, as one. So...
1: Well, regardless, we got what we wanted. Yeah, he, I mean, basically, the, the, crew, the, the crew owners, chief, the yeah. crew chief was was ousted, and um, we were able to start fresh. And it would be a breath of fresh air for Starcom Racing, and we would get a crew chief who was wonderful, got along with everyone. Um, you know, going into twenty twenty, um, we knew that we had a good, we had our old crew back. And everyone was joking and having fun again, and we had some good people at the helm.
0: Yeah, I think what really you're fortunate about, when you make personnel changes, you're looking to try to change the culture. You're trying to make enough of a change that it changes the dynamic uh, in a lot of areas. And and lots of times, it only takes one, two people, or three people that have respect, that basically have a sense that... uh, The team you know bands together with they they support uh and all of a sudden we found that guy and when he came in it was instantaneous this this man had he's an older older guy had a lot of experience well your age babe yeah i mean an older (laughs) gentleman right a lot of experience been very successful had worked at major teams and had had solved a lot of people's problems there. When they had younger crew chiefs there, he was doing their job and making them look good. And he is like a guy behind the scenes that took care of everybody's obstacles. And when he came here, it was like, you know, it was a breath of fresh air. Uh, it was enjoyable to work alongside him, work for him. And I think, you know, he was one of those guys that made you feel like that you had a say, or you, or you, what you said was valuable enough that he would listen and, and listen and see if he could integrate something in there, or he would tell you why he didn't think it would work. And then he started helping the younger guys maybe learn more. He was teaching them and showing them a the deal so that they would be worth more money down the road, And it just seemed like that everybody started being vested. They were getting more experience. They were all vested now in what they were doing and their specific jobs and their and their job titles. And all of a sudden, this thing started to flourish. Like I said, the culture and the whole thing changed instantly. And I felt like we were off to a good start. And that would be George Church. That is correct. And the next obstacle that we would basically have to overcome would be. Finding a funded driver because Landon Castle would be released and we would be looking for a driver that could bring money. Landon could bring no money. He th- said he would and thought that he could, and just never happened. And it happened a few times. It happened a few times. But it didn't
1: benefit the team as much. So, um, but yeah. But and anyways. We'd been entertained by several agents and, and uh, drivers coming and talking to the owners, of course. Once again, they're getting um, a lot of calls. And right. uh, But so, that was
0: the next agenda. We had to find a driver with funding because we, we needed to have money for NextGen. So we're going to stop here. The next discussion we'll have will be about NextGen and a paid driver.
1: And 2020 and the woes that would come.
0: Oh, yes. The woes for the world.
1: Yes. So thanks for listening
0: and we'll see you next
1: time. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.